You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics where we're turning to the German mystic, Meister Eckhart. In this special coaching session, Jim will present a summary overview of all we've learned this season. He's going to do this by inviting you to draw a diagram and journal as he teaches. So before we get started, you might want to get pencil and paper ready to draw along with Jim. In the show notes, you'll find a diagram that we put together, along with some of Jim's handwritten notes. And those might also be helpful to have with you as you listen. Welcome, Jim. It's lovely to be with you again. Yes, glad to be together again, around gathering around Eckhart's teachings. So. Yes, I'm really looking forward to this coaching session. So, Jim, why don't you get us started? Yes, thanks, Christian. You know, I think with each of these mystics and uh, with Meister Eckhart, what we're trying to do is to... Um, kind of slowly internalize the teachings and uh, as, they, as they illumine our own path and our own search for God. And what I want to do here is share with you a way that helps me to do that. So you can, I'll share with you this way to do that that helps me, and you can consider doing it also as kind of a meditation practice. But if not, just to your own self, be too, just listen and take it in this kind of poetic overview. And uh, how this works here is inviting you to take a sheet of paper. This is going to be like the cover sheet. And on this sheet of paper, right in the middle of the page, uh, draw a, a little circle, maybe about the size of a dime, slightly on the right side of the center of the page, halfway up, right in the middle of the paper, about halfway. And right over that circle, write God's ground. Then right next to it, draw another circle about the size of a dime, just to the left of it, and write my ground. And imagine, uh, you know the, the sign for infinity, the number eight sideways? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, draw that infinity so that one, one of the circles is in one circle of the circle eight, and the, and the other side of the eight is in the other side. So they're kind together in infinity like this. And imagine that that ground, that oneness in the ground, now is like the, the, the center of the face of a clock. And we're going to go around the clock, starting at 12 o'clock midnight. And with each point on the clock, I want to give it a name. Give it a name, just like a short phrase or a name. It corresponds to the name we gave it in the Eckhart, on the talks on Eckhart. Then off to the side, take another sheet of paper and title that, that sheet of paper Midnight. So that's going to be my reflections on Eckhart. And you can go back and listen to the other reflections uh, on the ground at midnight and add those. And then if you care to, uh, you can get like a three-ring binder and add your own insights, like a journal, like an Eckhart prayer journal. And so we'll go around the clock this way. Lovely. Starting with midnight. And so midnight is uh, God's ground. So then off to the side, how I did, take a separate sheet of paper and title that paper Midnight. So these are the reflections in on the ground. Uh, 
But the ground of God, Eckhart says, is like a silent desert. And it's really the infinity of God beyond all distinctions. So this is prior to and beyond the Trinity. This is like an infinite simplicity, an infinite silent hiddenness, like the abyss-like ground of God. We might think of it as, as the lofty depths of God. So just on the sheet of paper, you would write the ground of God, then off on the side you would write out this depth, this silent desert, this utter boundaryless stillness. Then starting to move around the clock, one o'clock is in the Trinity. And so you get a sheet of paper entitled that paper, the Trinity. So the Trinity is uh, that this eternal stillness of God in the Godhead is eternally in motion, a poetic motion, which he calls bellatio, like a boiling, and it's the Trinity. So the Trinity is divine relations of knowledge and love, such that intimacy is the first manifestation of the unmanifested mystery of the ground, as God is, is, is the Trinity. That in the Trinity, uh, the God the Father, God is origin, God is origin of God. So through all of eternity, God the Father is eternally expressing the infinity of himself, infinity of God, infinity of herself, as the Word. And so the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Logos. And the Father and the Son's life is they contemplate each other. He the Father contemplates himself in the Word, the Word in the Father, and the infinite love that arises from that infinite communal knowing is the Holy Spirit. And that's the, the Christian revelation understanding of the interdivine life of God's life, the Trinity. Eckhart uses that same Trinitarian imagery and he expresses it in feminine form. And he said, God the Father is like a woman in labor, eternally giving birth to God. So God's giving birth to God like the birth, interdivine within God. Two o'clock is it isn't just the God the Father giving birth to the Word and contemplating God in the Word. But God contemplates in the Word the eternal possibility of all things. So when God says the first words of Genesis, let there be light, God speaks light into being. God didn't have to think up what light might be. From all eternity, God the Father eternally contemplates light in the Word. And because everything in God is God, God contemplates the divinity of light. When God, when God says, let there be stones and trees and flowers and so on, God doesn't have to think up what a tree might be to create trees. From all eternity, God the Father eternally contemplates the divinity of trees in the Word. That's why in philosophy class at the monastery, the professor said, following St. Thomas Aquinas, that God is more a tree than a tree could ever possibly be. Because God's the infinity of the essence of what it is to be a tree. So too with water, so too with fire, so too with uh, the smell of, uh, the, the, the sound, that smell right after a rain. So, so too with the passage of time. God sees all of this in the word, and in the let it be, this is abolatio. So the boiling of the Godhead is the Trinity. Now it boils over as the universe. Mm. So we're the overflow 
of an infinite generosity in which everything is then spoken in eternity is now present throughout all of time. What shall we call this one, Jim, number two? Number two is God, not just contemplating God in the Word, but God contemplating in the Word the eternal possibility of all things, trees, stones. And since everything in God is God, God's contemplating the divinity of water, divinity of trees, the divinity, uh, um, and, and that's number two. Number three, then, is the first word, and God said, let there be light. See, God then, that act, this absolute and perpetual, is the abolatio, it overflows the ongoing act of creation. That's really helpful. So, Jim, for number two, I could write down God contemplating the eternal divinity of all things in God. That's right. All things in God, yep. Then number three, then when God does, this is the act of creation itself. That's what we would call Mm. it, the act of creation itself, the let it be. The let it be. Mm. And that let it be is, it isn't just that God says let it be, then goes off and lets the universe run on its own. Creation is absolute in the sense of, and it's perpetual. So if at the count of three, God would cease creating us into the present moment, we would disappear. It God would cease creating the universe into the existence, the universe would disappear. So that the world is God's body, and it is bodying forth the love that's uttering it into being. So the concreteness of things has a divine, sacred givenness to everything. In, in the world of nature, in the realm of rerum natura, the realm of things. So I'm, I'm calling that one, Jim, the perpetual let it be. That'd be the perpetual let it be of manifested reality, the divinity of manifested reality, the divinity of the concreteness of things. Number four, four o'clock, is God creates us. God creates our human nature, like everything according to its nature, trees and stones, our human nature. And our human nature is special in the sense that it isn't just that we're endowed with reason, thought which is science and culture and so on. But also God creates us with the capacity to recognize that we're God's manifested presence. We realize that the infinite reality of God is infinitely giving itself away as the reality of ourselves, others, and all things in our nothingness without God. The, The generosity of the infinite is infinite, and we are the generosity of God. We are the song God sings as is the world and the passage of time and everything. And we would say then, in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, like this poetic mythic story, we would say then that Adam and Eve in the garden, it isn't just that they were granted in human nature the powers of the soul, that's the power to understand, the power to remember, the power to love, but they were also able to live in the light of the ground, like the ground was shining out through their powers. So they saw the divinity of everything, the divinity of each other and of themselves and of the whole world. And they lived in this state, this primordial state of the powers being illumined by the ground and living the life in the light of the ground like this. The five o'clock is the fall, but the fall here is kind of archetypal, is poetic. Because a serpent said to Eve, see, God says you can do whatever you want here, it's all yours. It's right in the middle with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat this. So 
when the serpent speaks to Eve, says, you know, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Now, the point is they already were like God in the image and likeness of God. But he was offering, the Satan was offering, she was offering, he was offering, that it was possible to be like God without God. <laughs> and they took the bait. In AA, they talk about self-will run riot. And it's the gift of human nature, the gift of freedom. Because unless we're given not just the gift of recognizing that we are God's manifested presence, we're also given the gift of the freedom to accept that we are that. Because love is never imposed, it's always offered. And so the, the risk of that freedom is it goes awry. And the fall then is trying to be like God without God. So then at six o'clock then is where we appear for Eckhart. So this is our situation. So God, the ground of God is within us, is our own ground hidden deep within us. We're given the powers, the power to understand, the power to remember, the power to love, to desire, the will. But the powers of our soul have become exiled from the ground. That's why in the Advent sermon, Eckhart says, well, what the soul experiences or what the soul acts and achieves, the soul achieves with its powers, but not with the essence or the ground. So because we're acting out of our powers, exiled from the ground, we tend to think we are nothing but our powers. And we believe that we're real all by ourselves, And we have to get through the day as best we can. And, and this is why then it isn't just that I'm struggling with the whole of what I understand and what I don't understand or hope to understand, what I remember but I forget and I don't remember and I hope I remember, or what I desire and what I love and what I don't love and so on. But because I think that's all that I am, in the passage through time, in the approaching of the inevitability of death and fleetingness, I'm filled with fear. And, I'm, and therefore I cling to this illusion of myself of being real without God. And that clinging further closes off access to the ground. That's six, that's the state. And for Eckhart then, the, the word for this would be dissimilarity. The, the state of dissimilarity, and that's this image of the mirror the image of you in the mirror thinks it can be real without you. And like, it's like trying to be real without God and we're images of God. And so this is a state of dissimilarity, which is the whole realm of a traumatized, traumatizing world. It's a whole realm of struggle and in Buddhist terms, you know, samsara, yoga to this realm of illusion and suffering, unawareness of the ground that's always there. But the, the powers in their alienated, exiled state, in this confused state, we get kind of caught up in all of that. At seven o'clock is faith. Eckhart was a Christian. He's, teach, he's giving a, a sermons. These are the sermons of Meister Eckhart. And he's in the Christian dispensation of grace, of Christ. And so we see God then illuminating and, and healing the powers as the powers. Faith comes through hearing. And so it isn't just then that I'm trying to understand, the understanding self and all that we try to understand. But through faith, we're given to realize that we're infinitely understood. And we realize then, as Thomas Merton says, we're set free from the need to understand. Because I'm infinitely understood, Merton says, that when we go to pray, we begin by reminding ourselves that we belong to God. And uh, how, how, how can I be led by God? 
to know who God eternally knows me to be, hidden with Christ and God forever. And in my memory, my memory is healed, and that I know that God will never forget me. Everything real. So God knows we're having this talk right now. We're, we're together. And God, he, God will never forget this. So when we die and go into God, we'll go into this moment forever. That every, the fleetingness of every moment is eternal in God. It's for, forever. And suffering is eternal. Why Christ rose with the wounds. But it's suffering conquered by love. It's all luminous with grace. And so Christ rising from his wounds is kind of a visual metaphor of the eternality of suffering, utterly transformed and conquered by love. And this is a way of life. This I follow me, Jesus says. And so we, we seek to follow Christ. So in our life then, every situation, it isn't just what would God, what would Jesus do in this situation? It is a disciple of Jesus. What would, how would Jesus understand the situation that I'm in? What would Jesus' attitude be towards it? What would, what would Jesus say and move me to say? Or what would Jesus do then to act? And so I always seek to be ever more Christ-like as a disciple of Jesus. And my prayer then is Lexio Divina, discursive meditation and prayer. I have a rendezvous with God where I open the scriptures. And I speak that when I read Jesus' fear not, I've over, I'll be with you always. I know that the deathless presence of Jesus is personally saying that to me. And I take it into my heart. And then Jesus says, God says, now I spoke to you, you talk to me, which is meditation. So it's a loving exchange between ourself and God. How, how, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And how do I help me here? And this is so, so that loving, we might journal it out. And then the prayer is desire. Help me with this. Because I can't find my way to you without you. And that rendezvous is carried out through the day. And that's discipleship efficacious unto holiness. So then as we, as we ripen in that faith, so we, we deepen in humility, we deepen in gratitude, we deepen in patience, we deepen in amazement. We deepen that every time we fall, we know the fall is met with infinite mercy. So the acceptance of our brokenness is the portal, or the openness where the infinite mercy of God uh, reinstates his oneness with us as, uh, as an infinitely loved broken person. We live in the mercy of God, and we live that way. Eight o'clock is living this way. The, the powers of the soul become so refined and that the ground of God starts shining out through the powers, and they're becoming translucent to the ground. They become luminous with the ground, but it's not seen yet. It's just seen that the powers are becoming more expansive, more gracious, more luminous. So what happens then is the moment in which it becomes so refined that the ground starts shining through into the powers. And that was the Advent sermon of St. Augustine. It flashed before my soul. And if only I could seize hold of it, I would know all truth. Eckhart says, we must yearn and sigh for it. It steals the soul from herself for having glimpsed the ground we see that the, the life and the power is illumined by grace as, as amazing as that is. See, our destiny is the ground because we know that ground that we glimpse is our homeland. See, it's the destiny of the depth of ourself. And so then it raises the seeker's question. See, where the powers of the soul, where the ground starts shining into the powers. And then it starts raising the question then, 
of how do I find my way to the ground. It shines in my powers. I long to go there. But how can I, being finite, find my way to this ground that's infinite, even though it granted me a taste of it or a glimpse of it? In Eckhart, then, nine o'clock is detachment, is the path of detachment. Because he says the path can't be a matter of attaining because nothing's missing. So it can't be a matter of attaining. But what we can do is to learn to discern what's hindering us, what's one of the habits of the soul that hinder us from realizing that nothing's missing. And what he suggests then is, is the practice of detachment is one of recognizing it isn't just that we're attached to harmful habits of the soul, which we are. We have to, the moral imperative, we have to work on those with God's grace. But actually, we're attached to the illusion that the finiteness of ourself is the final say in who we are, that we're nothing but the self things happen to. We're nothing but the self that attains. And we can tell we're doing it because we get reactive. See, we get reactive. And we buy into the idolatry of circumstance having the authority to name who we are, instead of surrendering ourselves over to this infinite love that transcends and utterly permeates the circumstance that we're in, unexplainably. And then he gives several examples of that. So on your nine o'clock page on detachment, we could go through those uh, examples. And one example is he gives the example of um, kind of a special love for the people that we love more than the love of everybody throughout the whole world, the preferential love. And so in preferential love then, uh, I would be devastated if my daughter died. But on the news, and I hear that someone's daughter died, and I see the father weeping, I'm not as deeply moved as my daughter would die. So I'm to open the aperture of my heart to an empathy with all people throughout the world whose daughters die. And so the, the subtle part of it is, and therefore I seek to be liberated from preferential love in the midst of my preferential love. I do have preferential love. My preferential love doesn't have the final say in what my love is, because I'm more and more opening my heart to let the world lay claim on me, this empathy. Likewise, another example he gives is when we're in the midst of a project in the process of time. And then we're invested in the outcome of the project. Will we finish it on time? Will it be the way we want? And so on. And, and that investment in time, we realize that we get anxious or upset or embarrassed if we can't finish it or if people don't accept it, whatever. So here we are to do our best to have it turn out the best it can, but at the same time be interiorly free and detached from how it turns out. Because God's infinite love for me is the sole authority of who I am. How the project turns out isn't an authority in who I am. Although in our broken state, it feels like it. But it's not true. It's the adult. So we have to be freed from the finality. So we try to have it turn out. If it goes well, we're glad it's going well. But the joy we feel in that is like nothing compared to the infinite joy of God that's given to me in the ground every moment of my life. And if it doesn't go well, it's sad. But the sadness can't cast a shadow over this infinite love for me permeating and transcending my sadness. And I, I, I try to work with that. I try to work on that.
So that's the intimacy of detachment. And you could make a list of any aspect of your life where you get reactive and where the conditioned state and the outcome of the conditioned state is experienced as having the authority to name who you are. The sad is sad, but it's not just sad. The joyful is joyful, but compared to the high, high joy, the joy isn't the joy that we live for. And we start trying to develop that habit. And at this point, our prayer then becomes Alexio Divina, meditation and prayer, but it's Alexio Divina, a traditional Catholic word here is examination of conscience. So we sit quietly and we look over the day. When I was in the monastery, we chanted Vespers, and then there'd be silent meditation, I think, for 15 minutes. And you, you look at the day in the presence of God. Where did I trip it? Where did I trip and stumble today? Where did I get all caught up again? And where did you surprise me with your presence like this? And where I did trip up, help me with this. Help me with this. So I, I bring to you this tripping place. It's in my heart. And I bring it to you because I know you're infinitely in love with me in the midst of my tripping. St. Paul's the thorn in the flesh. I asked God to remove it, and God said, leave it there as your teacher. Because sometimes the tripping place is a constant reminder of our need for God's mercy and our need for, to have patience with ourselves, echoing God's infinite patience with us. And as we practice detachment, it's a lifetime work. We have to also be detached from the ability to be as detached as we'd like to be. Because <laughs> ego is always putting the carrot on the end of the stick like there's some kind of goal. Uh, Merton once said in the monastery, it, we're always setting up a, an agenda inside. Like once I stop doing this and this, then God and I will really get down to business. Once I start doing this, God and I, and he's realized with God, there's no agenda. God doesn't have an agenda. But love is God's agenda. We're the ones who create these cul-de-sacs. So we're trying to let the light of Christ consciousness shine in and mercy. And as we, as we do that, detachment ripens as similarity. And similarity, and he uses the example of the just person. And he said the just person, really like drawn to justice, has no life of his own. She has no life of her own. She's transformed and lives by what justice is. And so he might use the example of Dr. Martin Luther King as a concretization of justice. They had no life of his own. Or Mother Teresa of Calcutta, as she had no life of her own, she became compassion. Like this. And although they had no life of their own, when you're in the presence of people like this, you feel you're in the presence of someone who's discovered what all life is about. So that's why I say then, in similarity, find that act, find that person, find that relationship, find that creative activity, find that form of service, find that form of acceptance of long-term suffering, find that surrendering yourself over to the divinity of ordinary details of the day, such that when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation of yourself and brings you strangely home to yourself, near your origin, near the ground. And so this is a life of similarity. And the thing about similarity is that it breaks. Because he says we can turn away from justice, and if we turn away from it, it becomes just legal. So we have to transcend being legal and restore justice. But even the break is accepted with mercy. It deepens our humility. And then this ripens at 11 o'clock into identity. And this is that 
poetic metaphor of identity of music. So what Isaac Perlman plays, he plays with such surrendered rapture. The music isn't coming from him, but the beauty is flowing th through him. And when we become detached from all distracting influences and we become kind of mesmerized by the beauty, there's a certain point where the listening is as pure as the playing. And it's no longer true the solo is on one side playing and we're on the other side receiving. There's just the rapture of the music that transforms us into itself. And he said to realize that's God. In a state of, is it, we are the song God sings. See, this is the music of the divinity of our life. And uh, as we freed ourselves from attachment, there's like this identity where we and God mutually disappear as other than each other. And there's a symphonic, kind of intimately realized, ever more habitual state. It isn't, I think, an identity. It, do, it isn't that it doesn't break. But even when it breaks, it never breaks. So when Teresa of Avila, the image we gave, seventh mansion and she's a little cart horse-drawn cart after a big rain and it's coming up the other side and the cart tips over and she falls in the mud on her hands and knees and says lord why are you letting this happen to me he said teresa this is the way i treat my friends he said no wonder you have so few See? so even and i think this is also an understanding of acceptance of death you know the stages of dying denial of bargaining depression of anger and so on that in acceptance, in a state of acceptance, is freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. So it's tyranny from the midst of brokenness. God's the divinity of our brokenness. God's the divinity of every breath and heartbeat. God's the divinity of standing up and sitting down. And there's an unbroken kind of underlying continuity or flow and identity. It's 11 o'clock. So the 11 o'clock page is that kind of, Another thing about identity, it then includes the world. It, it, it gathers in the world. Because if we look at, the, uh, at a tree through ego consciousness, we don't, see that the, we don't see the divinity of the tree. We sit in its shade or we uh, cut it down for firewood, whatever. But if we contemplate a tree, then all of a sudden we start to see the, the divinity of the tree shining through. If we contemplate the sound of running water, if we contemplate the smell of a flower. And so we start seeing then the divinity of the world. So it's like we, God, and the world, like in a circular dance of God-given mutuality and equality. Then we ask ourselves, now we're approaching midnight, we're coming back up to midnight, or we might say 13 o'clock because we're beyond time. Because now we ask ourselves, uh, what could possibly be the origin of such an overflowing, all-inclusive uh, divinity of the immediacy of everything, intimately realized? The infinity of the concreteness of life itself, intimately realized. What could possibly be the origin? And, uh, we, and this is where we enter the ground. And we, we go bring ourselves back to the ground of the Godhead where it becomes one. And so what are the qualities then that Eckhart invites us to consider as signs of discerning the ground? Like what are, what's, what's that look like, such a person? One thing he says in, in the ground is that um, uh, 
He says, it's like learning to live without a why. He says, you let a horse out in the morning and it runs with all its might across the pasture. Why does it run? It runs without a why. The flower blooms. Why does it bloom? It blooms without a why. Because don't forget, there's no intentionality in the Godhead. There is intentionality in the Trinity. God intends to create us. God intends to redeem us. God intends like this. God's will. But there's no will. There's no intentionality in the, in the Godhead. And this is why we would say then, that all of life is the anarchy of the ineffable. It all spills over. It's infinite emptiness, pregnant with God, pregnant with the world, pouring itself out without a why. And so we learn to let go of whys and reasons, conclusions, and we live in kind of a spacious, childlike freedom. It doesn't mean that secondary consciousness, there is a why. Why won't, why won't my TV work? Or why did you do that? But we know that ultimately speaking, everything is abyss-like. It's like an anarchy of infinite freedom welding up and carrying us along and a freedom from the outcome of conclusions or answers. It's like being unexplainably empty-handed in the fullness of, in the poverty of God, the Godhead. Another example he uses of this, that in the, in the Godhead, in the ground, we see that everything is equal in the original emanation is equal. So he says, if we take an archangel and take a housefly, in the original emanation, they're equal. Why? Because God's the reality of the archangel and it's nothingness without God. And God's the reality of the housefly and it's nothingness without God. And so we start to see that everything has a stature that cannot be calculated. A single grain of sand, the tick of the clock, uh, looking out the window, everything has this infinite equality to it and at the origin, like the upwelling of the origin at 13 o'clock or midnight, the ground. And then he says, lastly, is, is that, the, that in this ground, we see that in the ground, by the stillness within myself, the sun is moving across the sky. Since my ground is God's ground and God's ground is God's ground, we just no longer know it poetically. We just no longer know it as a consoling insight but now it becomes the very actuality of realizing that. So by the very stillness within myself, none distinct from the non-distillness of God and the bellatio and the overflow, by the stillness within myself, the sun is moving across the sky. In the stillness within myself, the axis of the turning world, T.S. Eliot talks about the stillness, it's the, like a, the orbiting outflow of this motion. But it's not a motion that disrupts the stillness. It's a motion that embodies the stillness. So he uses the example of Mary. And he says like, this, like a door, the hinge is motionless. The boards of the door swing back and forth. So the, the, the motions of our life are activities. This is divine overflow of an act of stillness. And so when Eckhart says, uh, God is a circle, the center of which is everywhere and the circumference of which is nowhere is this boundaryless state of uh, the Godhead. And the final thing I would say too for Eckhart, notice for him, this is all lived out in the world, but with the Christ consciousness of what the world is. Like what, what is the, the concreteness of this uh, beautiful, uh, graced, brutal, savage, unfair, complicated thing. 
One Zen master once said, it would be so much easier if we were asked to be simple in a simple world, but we're being asked to be simple in a complicated world. Eckhart says not to let the center of yourself be taken over by the complexity. The complexity is there, but if you can see it out of that center and see how it's illumined, you can walk through it and make an offering to move it in, in the direction toward goodness, toward God, towards love. And so I have found then that um, uh, laying out this, like I just did with you with these pages, and I also found that when I would give Eckhart talks, this is really how I form the talks. I would take these quotes and I write out pages. So each, each one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, and it really helped to put it together poetically in my mind. Yes. And so I found it so helpful with Eckhart to, if you decide to do this yourself, to fill this mm -hmm. in. And then over time, every so often go back to it like a journal. And in your own prayer life or what's happening in your life, how would you, how would you write out this? Because I've had this image too that, uh, say someone was sitting in a church for the first time hearing Eckhart. And at one level, they uh, didn't know what he's talking about. But let's say they just fell in love. And they could tell he was putting words to what just is happening to mm. them. Let's say they just had a child. Or let's just say their spouse just died. Or let's just say that you, it's raining outside through the church. You can hear the rain pouring down. You can tell Eckhart's talking about mm. that. See, And that's, that's the disarming intimacy of Eckhart. It goes directly to that immediacy, everything. So Eckhart says, a person who has come to this state at uh, 13 o'clock or the big midnight, goes back to the stable or some other trade, knowing that eagerness, even mystical, makes one forgetful. Mm. Because to be eager for anything is not to realize that the present moment is already infinitely more than everything. Mm. There's nothing to be equal for like this. And, uh, and also that quote I gave in the first talk where uh, Sherman says that... Uh, when Eckhart's teaching, the fact his clothing was full of holes, meaning it's so ineffable, mm -hmm. suggests to us the fire that consumed him. Because conflict uh, invites paradox, and paradox eventually comes to rest in silence, in the silence. And so I would say, too, in prayer, as we move through likeness and identity, Go ahead. The prayer, it isn't as if we, we don't practice lexio meditation and prayer anymore, but it becomes, there's more and more moments of just utter stillness, just utter, complete stillness. You're just silence. Or you're aware, like the swinging of the door, the flow of the words, whether the words of Scripture or your own words to God are echoing with that stillness. They echo with the, it's like, like a prayer, like the monks chanting the Psalms, that all words have this divinity or flow to them. So that's, that's my offering of how I found it helpful to sit with that card. Well, it's a beautiful offering, Jim. Thank you so much. And if it's okay, I'd like to go back over the elements of the diagram with you. So we started at midnight or 12 o'clock with the ground. One o'clock is the Trinity. Two o'clock is God contemplating the eternal divinity of all things. Three o'clock, God's perpetual let it be, bringing all things into existence. Four o'clock, 
God's perpetual let it be, creating human beings. Five o'clock, the fall. Six o'clock, we're born exiled from the ground in dissimilarity. Seven o'clock, faith illumines the powers of the soul. Eight o'clock, moments where the ground shines through the powers. Nine o'clock, practicing the path of detachment. Ten o'clock, the state of similarity. Eleven o'clock, the state of identity. And then we come back to 12 o'clock, or I think you called it 13 o'clock because we're outside of time at this point, back in the ground. And Jim, I'm wondering if I can draw a line from the state of identity through that original 12 o'clock and back into the ground in the very centre of the diagram, the the ground that we drew at the beginning, in the middle of the That's a good point. Let me put it this way. This this middle, God's ground is God's ground, Micah, where we put the two together, the infinity. That is infinitely shining out as each step around the Mm. clock. It's just that when we're uh, in a state of dissimilarity, it's shining through the dissimilarity, but we don't see it. Yes, yeah. In faith, it's shining out through faith, but it's it's like the powers of the soul are becoming translucent to the light. See, as in a mirror darkly, Paul says. And so what happens is we go around, it's it's shining out into each thing. It's just that it becomes more and more transparent. Yes. And then toward the end, ever more non distinguished from the ground itself. Because another thing that Eckhart says, and, he, and, and with regard to similarity and identity is giving birth to the word. So he says, just like uh, God is eternally giving birth to the word, like a woman in labor, mm-hmm. Uh, God gives birth to the word in the ground of the soul, and he says that no differently than in the Trinity itself. And he said, when we live this way, with a generous heart, we give birth to God back into God's fatherly heart. See, And he said, what we and God, what we and Christ share in common, see? what we share in common is that we are simultaneously engaged in the activity giving birth to the word, back into God's fatherly heart, and God comes back home to herself, eternally in God. So. That's that idea of being a verb in God that we're... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a verb, an adverb of the verb, and then, and then the oneness beyond that, yes. Wonderful. So what I see then, if I look at the diagram starting at midnight with the ground, that the origin of everything is the ground, and then the end point of everything is the ground, and then if I take my line down to the middle... That's like the engine of the whole thing is the ground. Yes, exactly. Here's another way to put it, the way uh, Reiner Sherman puts it too, is that the, the Godhead is the pre-originary origin. It's the origin because there's no origin in the Godhead. Uh. There's no intention. There's no, it's a, and so it overflows, Bellatio. Mm. It, the Bellatio is the Trinity. So it's the ground is manifested. And then it's manifested as us, but it all flows from an infinite un- nothingness that radiates out wow. from and permeates the circularity of life. So I do have some questions. <laughs> okay, good. One is, I, I did just want to go back over the, the um, states of prayer you mentioned just to make sure I, I capture them. So one is 
Lexio when we're, we're in at seven o'clock faith and discipleship, where we're practicing our Lexio. But then what I'm hearing is those practices continue all the way from here, but they deepen. It, it goes like this: they they continue, and in a way that for some people they continue, uh, but they become there's more and more spaces of silence. I, I use the phrase sustained attentiveness infused with love, like we're just silenced by the beauty of what God just told us in the scriptures. See, Or we're silenced by what we heard ourselves just say to God. Like we didn't know that we knew that. Silence. And it goes back to the word again. like this. So the words become uh, uh, like infused with this silence. But also what happens is that there are moments of no words and no thought. Mm. There are moments of just utter. As a matter of fact, you dis, this is Teresa, the fifth mansion. You disappear from yourself in reflective consciousness. Mm. And for St. John of the Cross, to you, uh, you, it no longer nurtures you. And when you try to meditate, you're doing violence to yourself. And you have to wait empty-handed in this poverty and this passage through a dark night. And then in that darkness, oh, night lovelier than the dawn. So it's very intimate and grace what the patterns are with the prayer. But I would say another way of rounding the circle, then all life becomes a prayer, where all life becomes God praying, God, God's praying through us, and, and we are God's mm-hmm. prayer, and everything has that quality. And that, and that constant conversation with God rather than the, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and so what I'm hearing you say, that movement from seven to eight, that the more stillness, the, the glimpses, the the begins to shine through in those ways. Um, and then at point nine, you mentioned the path of detachment, which Eckhart lays out, which is really beginning to uh, practice in all of life. Yeah, I want to use the example we used in the talks earlier. Let's say you're in this relationship, you're like you're deeply in love with this person who's deeply in love with you. And let's say you realize you're, therefore, you're, because of the love, you're very motivated not to do anything to cause sorrow to the mm-hmm. beloved, not to do anything to compromise the deepening oneness with the beloved. And therefore, you know that there are habits of your heart, maybe half-heartedness or pretending you're listening and you're really not, or, or uh, not following through and being attentive to the person. And as you become aware of that, you're very motivated to liberate yourself through love. And, and also, when you slip and fall, as you do, you bring it to the beloved and acknowledge it, like making amends. You bring it to, and therefore you make your, you make your look, I, I know this and this and this, but I can't. I just, I wish, but I just can't, but I love you so much. And, but I want to, and knowing that I want to, I so appreciate your patience with me as I learn to be patient with myself. And that very willingness that I can't itself is a kind of intimacy. And when they, when the, then the partner responds back and mirrors that, you know, I think that's kind of, uh, that's, that's, that's why the nuptial mystics, John of the Cross, that's why they saw marital love. Uh, where Eckhart sees it more as the mind. See, he sees it more as an experiential understanding. He sees it more as, as, as infused with love. Yeah, that's helpful. And what I'm seeing in that example is that the love is already there. It's just not being expressed to manifest. So you're trying to detach from the things that are in the way 
of being in the flow of the love that already is present and existing between the two. That's right. And it's this thing too in all these mystics too is where the mind descends into the heart. And so it's it's a loving knowledge. So the one we know is the one that we love. The one we don't love, we don't know. And so it's a loving knowledge and the two are actually in a reciprocity with each other as uh, this loving knowledge. So it's a detachment from the things that get in the way of the the flow of love in the world, which is God. And uh, and it's also what I've heard you say too, Jim, it's a yes. You, it's like there's there's a yes to that love, which you're living your life yeah, as a right. yes in a way, trying to orient. That's right. That's right. And there's another subtle thing, example, because I live alone now. Um, say, being alone, say, watering the houseplants. Mm-hmm. I don't think Eckhart has in mind where you water the houseplants going, oh, my God, God's the infinity of this plant. <laughs> God's the infinity. Of this. Oh, I got to go sit down, my head's mm-hmm. spinning. God wants us just to water the plants, <laughs> knowing that just watering the plants is the divinity of watering I see. the plants. Yeah. See, it's like trying to breathe on purpose. Yes. You know, it's, uh, so in, in a way, we are aware of it. We can renew our intention to mm-hmm. renew it. But it almost has turned, it has turned you into itself. Yes. See, so you just being, waking up in the morning and touching your feet to the floor is itself it. And you somehow know it without having to consciously know it. It's like, it's like habitual realization of the giftedness of the immediacy of things. So this idea of bringing a virgin mind to things, Jim, uh, how would that apply to watering the plants in that way? That would be good to bring that in because I didn't bring it earlier too. He says the powers of the soul is that in the understanding, the memory, the loving, the desire, there's also feelings for a feeling. But the five senses is how we bring in the surrounding world through the five senses. And as we bring in the surrounding senses, so the eye uh, sees the physical reality of the tree, it comes into the eye, and then the, the act of intellect forms an internal image. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the image is not what God eternally knows the tree to be. The image is what is internalized in us, as a per- Buddhists would say, as a perception, like an image. And then we collect those perceptions, and they become ideological. So I become my internalized opinion, my internalized conclusions, my internalized answer, what I agree with and what I don't agree with. And therefore he says, we must, be a, we must be, have a virgin mind. And the person says back, but how can we have a virgin mind since we have all these images? He says, but if you were detached from them, see, like preferential love, whatever it is, you could know that my, my image, see, God is more a tree than a tree could ever... Thomas Merton says, although I've walked in those woods, how can I claim to love them? See, one by one, I shall forget the names of individual things. See, one by one, I will let go of the name I give to something, that God might, that I might be receptively open to what God eternally knows a tree to be, the divinity of the tree. And so really it's freedom, virgin mind is freedom from ideological living. And it's really at the level of experience. So it's not that now I look at the tree and go, oh, there's God over there in that tree, and that's my new ideology. It's more I'm, I'm opening to the fact that I, if I don't look carefully, I don't see the tree and as the divinity of the tree. 
That's exactly right. We have to start somewhere. So we give it a name so we can talk about it. Yeah. But we realize what we're really talking about are habits of the soul that are fostered in daily quiet time and in daily life. Like we foster the habit of the immediacy of what's happening, being receptively open to the divinity of the immediacy of what's happening. So our, our breath is this, to inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale. So God's the infinity. God breathed into Adam the gift of life. So every time I inhale, God's exhaling herself into me as my breath. And then when I exhale, I exhale myself in love and giving myself in love back to the love that the next inhalation is giving itself to me so I can learn to listen to the reciprocity of my breathing as the music of God giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And everything can start to take on that intimate quality. I also think in a creative activity like the artist, they might start out first as methods and you start somewhere. But as they lean into it, uh, John Cage, Cage says, uh, the artist doesn't begin in earnest until they get to the point they no longer know what they're doing. And something, and it, enga- it absorbs you into a one, and something flows through the absorption out into the world is the beauty of it. It's same with the voice of a poet. See, where does where's the, the voice of a poet come from? This flow of language, it doesn't define anything or explain anything, but the rhythm and intonations of the poet's voice accesses us and we start to move with it. And we start to see that everything has that potential. Gerard Manning Hopkins would call it the inscape of things. You know, the interior of divinity shining out through the concreteness of everything. And you talked about the practice of contemplating something as a way of practicing this virgin mind. So I might decide to sit with my tree or to to sit with my breath or to sit with something um, in that way. Let's say first, to, to contemplate psychologically means to observe carefully or to pay attention. So as we go through the day, most things we're aware of in passing on our way to something else. But something catches our eye, say a, tr- a tree or a flower or something. something catches uh, this one poet, she, someone put a poem on my desk, and the poem, uh, the poet is Barbara Lutz, uh, and the poem was, it, uh, her in the poem refers to her soul. It takes almost nothing to move her, a soft agitation in the rain, an ant going by that knows where it's going. And so anything we pause to ponder, and then if we linger there, the pondering is lengthened, we can feel we're making kind of a descent. We're dropping down into a qualitatively deeper awareness of and oneness with qualitative deeper interior dimensions of what we're contemplating. And, uh, and then the, that descent is endless, it's abyss-like, and God's the infinity of that descent. It's like that, I think. And then uh, you encourage us to choose the act, the relationship, uh, the community where we, f- we feel uh, ourselves moving into that flow of selfless love, like that kind of sense of the unconditional. And, uh, and so that might be something we're already doing, and, but it's just a matter of bringing this kind of attention to it. Um, and then you talked about we could, uh, to help us with that, use what you did in the monastery, this examination in the evenings, uh, just a gentle examination of the day and whether we, uh, 
where, where we have areas where we're still clinging or we're still attached and we might want to ask for God's help. Exactly, yes. And I also think, you know, uh, the example I use is uh, if you're on a commercial airplane flight and the, the pilot over the speaker system announces that everyone knows they're a mystic and they feel a vision coming on, you would just hope they'd fly the plane. <laughs> see. And so we have to be very careful that we don't, uses a reflectively standing back the poet because sometimes it's 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 in the engagement if you're teaching children teach do i mean if you're sitting with patients in therapy with trauma listen to the patient you know if if uh, you're out in the garden gardening be in the dirt in the garden like be with all your heart be holy that present and engaged and let the fullness of that more and more keep shining out yeah and, and that, then when you sit in the rendezvous you entirely reflect upon it but you reflect upon it in a way that's entirely present to the engagement itself. Mm-hmm. See, the act of reflecting is itself as an immediacy. And so, you know, it's like So you that. do that with your whole heart too. With your whole heart. Yeah, yeah that makes yeah. a lot of sense because we're not trying to detach from the concreteness of our life. We're trying to be more present to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's another thing too, I would say too, subtle. What's the greatest commandment they ask Jesus? Like all these beautiful things you say, what if we grounded ourselves in that? Every th- all these beautiful teachings would fall into place. And he didn't say about anything to believe. Any- he said to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. So the point is, I don't know what all my heart is. See, how do I do that? And then I find there are certain moments where something catches hold of me and I'm present with all my heart. I'm reading a child a good night story, or I'm sitting alone in the dark, or uh, I'm trying to understand somebody who's trying to share something with me that matters and I don't. And all of a sudden, that is all my heart. You know, mm, mm-hmm. And there's something blessed about that. There's something uh, like the divinity of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you can notice that, that's something you can cultivate. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. What a wonderful, helpful session. And I see that you have the diagram drawn in front of you and with some written notes. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share that with our listeners. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. I mean, here's an example of where I said like uh, like the one o'clock page, the two o'clock page, and uh, uh, how I do that. So an example, like for example, here's my five, six, and seven o'clock page. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so, I can read it. <laughs> uh, but, so anyway. It's it's shorthand. It's your, your shorthand. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So wonderful. I, I'm sure people will really enjoy seeing that. I know I love seeing the way you put your notes together. And uh, so that's really helpful. Thank you, Jim. And then also we wanted to put, pop in the show notes some other resources for people that might want to pursue Eckhart further beyond this season of the podcast. So other sources, if they want to pursue other sources, one at this pastoral level of trying to make it as clear and accessible as possible. Um, some years ago, I did an audio set with Sounds True, uh, the, the teachings of Meister Eckhart, Indestructible Joy. And it's the same, it was, I shared it the way it was given to me then. It's always evolving within me. And, but it's another way, I think it's five hours of audio and uh, they could listen to that. Also, there's the thin little book, The Way of Paradox by Cyprian Smith. 
It's very simple, very paradoxical. So there's the audio set, which sounds true, and then there's Cyprian Smith's book. Matthew Fox, I think a mystic warrior for our times, is uh, imagining Eckhart meeting Thich Nhat Hanh, Imagine Eckhart meeting a Sufi, meeting uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he he bears witness to the universality of these teachings, and how they're all in, in their own voice saying the same thing. I find that enlightening. I think that's helpful. And uh, then, if you want to pursue more academic ones, if you're so inclined, I'll include those sources of Reiner Sherman, mm-hmm. Wandering Joy, and there, and he goes, he takes a sermon. He gives the sermon, and then paragraph by paragraph, he goes through each sentence, one line at a time, on what the high German meant, its references in Plotinus and Augustine, and, Augustine, and so on. And he shows how Eckhart constructed his thought, and how he spoke, how he used his language like that. And then uh, another source is the uh, Paulus Press series of the mystics, of the, is that there's, they devoted two volumes to Meister Eckhart. One is his sermons in Latin, given the University of Paris, which is basically biblical commentaries and other writings. And the other one is his trial, his defense of his trial, where he was accused of his heretical statements. And the other one is Eckhart the Teacher, and those are collected sermons. It's very nice. And Matthew Fox's book, Breakthrough, is a, a nice introduction with a nice collection of sermons. So my, uh, Matthew Fox's collection, the two volumes of, of Eckhart, and then the academic work by Sherman, and and also Bernard McGinn's The Mystical Thought of Meister Eckhart. Okay, yeah. Is, is very fine. Also, those who are inclined toward that kind of lexio. Another of the academic works along with Sherman and along with McGinn is uh, Meister Eckhart, Mysticus Theologian by Robert Casey Foreman. There's some lovely quotes in there. And there's um, some other books that I have looked at, read, but I've not studied them, but they look very good. They're excellent sources. One is Meister Eckhart, Master of Mystics by Richard Woods. It's good. good book. And then another one is Meister Eckhart, Mystical Theologian by Oliver Davies. There are others too, but I, I've not studied those. I've read them, walked through them, but I've not sat with them and outlined them and so on, but they, they're good. Wonderful. Well, that will be a Big help to anyone who's hoping to continue to go deeper with Eckhart. And so thank you for that, Jim. Oh, I would say, too, each person, you, sometimes for different reasons, mystics strike us more deeply than others. And the same thing would hold with all these mystics. You could read the, the, the text itself and then in-depth commentaries, like doing deep Bible study, do, doing deep mystic study. And I'll write it out, listen to it within yourself, yeah. Well, Jim, thank you for an incredibly helpful coaching session and for giving us those resources for people who'd like to look further into Eckhart. Uh, Just a wonderful session, a wonderful season so far. And um, I think today is going to really be a gift to everyone. Um, And so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. 
All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.